Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Recently, I took a trip to the New York Public Library in the center of Manhattan. Inside and up the main stairs, there's these rows of prints on the walls. They're all part of an exhibit meant to shine a light on what was happening in Europe about 300 years ago, when the world of finance was undergoing some pretty big changes. Some of these prints hanging up feature characters from Greek and Roman mythology. So you have like the figure of Fortuna, um, you have mythological gods and goddesses like the figure of Atlas. That's Meredith Martin talking there. She's an art history professor at New York University, and she helped curate this collection that she's showing to me. There's also the figure of Icarus, you know, who becomes a perennial figure of, of financial fallouts. Now, this exhibit captures moments from a pivotal time in history. It's when the term millionaire first entered the lexicon, and when parts of Europe became engulfed in not one, but two economic bubbles in the same year. At a quick glance across the walls and glass cases in this library hallway, you can recognize some of the telltale signs of a bubble. For example, there's the promise of vast wealth just waiting to be acquired. On one wall, another curator of the exhibit, Nina Dubin, shows me an 18th century map drawn by the French government, showing off its colonial land that's now in the modern-day United States. Maps like these were selling the new world, selling the idea that, for instance, this one by the French artist Guillaume de Lille is spreading the notion that it was just a matter of time before gold would be struck. And so this map is filled with inscriptions that are beckoning with the lore of mineral wealth. You can see the frenzied need to buy up as many shares as you can before they're gone. A sort of FOMO or, you know, fear of missing out, but this time with powdered wigs and tri-cornered hats. As I move through the hall, Nina shows me one print that's illustrating just a horde of people. Some are whispering into each other's ears and others are literally at each other's throats in a fist fight. We also see here, and there's a reference here to the devil blowing bubbles, to fame, the figure of fame who's spreading rumors about different stock opportunities. Now, all this stuff is from around the year 1720, but a lot of it sounds familiar, doesn't it? The ongoing crypto crash. Dow down, S&P down, NASDAQ down. Biggest point drop in history. Ending another week in the red. The value of cryptocurrency has been dropping. Stocks are cratering too. Stock mania, FOMO, speculative frenzy. The 1720s and the 2020s, suddenly they don't sound so different. I'm Michaela Tendera from the Financial Times. We're living in an era where bubbles in finance and the global economy may seem like they're bursting left and right. 
So on today's episode of Behind the Money, we're going to go back in time to see what we can learn from two important bubbles that popped 300 years ago. We can begin this story of these 300-year-old bubbles with an 18th-century British business called the South Sea Company. It was a a large corporation that possessed rights to trade uh, in Spanish America. That's John Shevlin talking there. He's a professor at New York University where he studies 17th and 18th century commerce and finance. But when it was set up in 1711, um, its principal function was to absorb or convert unfunded government debt, uh, to take it off the market, to turn it into shares in the company. And then, in return... The government promised to pay a 6% uh, interest on whatever debt was converted, and shareholders could uh, hope to get profits from the company's trade in the Americas as well. So in more simple terms, the South Sea Company was basically offering its investors a debt-for-equity swap. And theoretically... If this trade in the Americas booms, which I should point out that much of this trade centered around the buying and selling of slaves, well, that meant it would be good for investors, too. Now, around this time, the Bank of England is also in its early years. And while both of these things are getting going in Great Britain, there's someone else who's paying attention from afar. And that man is called John Law. John Law was a Scottish financier, uh, gambler, and um, theorist of money and credit. He's regarded by historians as one of the most astute writers on the topic of money uh, in the early 18th century. Law sees what's happening in Great Britain with the bank and the South Sea Company, this financial revolution. And, well, it's a bit more complicated than this, but... In essence, John Law says, wow, that's really cool. Now I'm going to go and try and pitch this to France, except my plan's going to be bigger and it's going to be better. So Law moves to France, where he meets with the regent, who's in charge of the country at the time because the king, Louis XV, is just a little kid. And apparently Law's quite persuasive because over the course of just a few years, he convinces the regent to basically let him overhaul the country's financial system. That also ends up putting the country on the path to setting up one very big bubble. But Law doesn't know that yet. And so he gets to work setting up three important things in France. One, he starts what becomes a state bank for France. Two, he introduces a new system of paper money for the country. And three, he establishes what's called the Mississippi Company in France. This was a company that had a monopoly on all French trade uh, beyond Europe. So that includes areas like the French colony in North America. But this company's operations also go well beyond just trade. Uh, And it also possessed really valuable assets at home in France, um, including the right to collect most forms of taxation in the kingdom. Now, all of that alone is a pretty big deal. But 
there's another significant difference between Law's Mississippi Company and the British South Sea Company. Law's big coup, his really big coup in 1719, he proposed partially an imitation of the South Sea Company, but on a far grander scale. He proposed to convert the whole French national debt, which was enormous after 25 years of warfare, to convert the whole French national debt into shares in the Mississippi Company. And it's, it is that action that really unleashes um, the bubble environment uh, that we describe as the Mississippi bubble. Now, while the idea of consolidating a king's debt as stock in a company actually wasn't unheard of. That's what the Bank of England did. That's what the East India Company did. And that's, of course, what the South Sea Company was all about. The idea of consolidating the whole of a country's debt as the stock of a corporation, that was new uh, and grandiose. For a brief amount of time, things are looking pretty good. And things are looking especially good for John Law. He becomes very wealthy and even buys up some chateaus around France. But things are also getting quite complicated. This system that Law created, the bank, the Mississippi Company, the paper money, they're all intertwined. And the common thread is this one guy, John Law. And then the British government and its South Sea Company gets wind of what's happening in France and decide that now they want to copy Law's plan. The South Sea Company in 1720 basically imitates Law and says, look, you know, we can, we can do the same. We can roll the whole British national debt uh, into South Sea shares and essentially convert the whole thing into stock. It doesn't take long for things to go off the rails. And that's not just for one bubble, but two the Mississippi bubble, and the South Sea bubble. Both companies manipulate the market with the goal of increasing the value of their shares. The Mississippi company, for example, uh, it buys enormous numbers of its own shares to shore up the price, depending on uh, unlimited credit from the bank, which uh, law also controls. You also see the South Sea Company intervening in the market to boost the price of its own shares. So they're, they're creating conditions in which they, they, they're, they're, they're forcing the value of the stock up. But soon enough, it's all going to come crashing down. So um, the Mississippi bubble uh, began to burst at the end of May 1720, and th that collapse was precipitated by Law's own measures, which were intended to sort of cool off overheated financial markets to reduce speculation and to curb inflation. Inflation was becoming a problem um, because of huge issues of paper money. Um, the bank uh, is lending money to the company uh, so that the company can uh, buy its own stock. And so there's a massive increase uh, in the quantity of paper currency in circulation. So Laws is intervening, and um, there's sharp public opposition uh, to those measures. In this immediate aftermath, there were riots on the streets of Paris, and Law spent the summer of 1720 trying to fix his system. But ultimately, he just couldn't do it. Meanwhile, over in Great Britain, 
things begin to fall apart for the South Sea Company for a different reason. It really uh, unravels in August uh, of 1720. And it, it does so uh, really for ironic reasons, but the, the, the actual timing of it has to do with the first prosecutions in Britain under what was known as the Bubble Act. Um, and the Bubble Act was a piece of legislation brought in in 1720 to protect the South Sea scheme by shutting down uh, a plethora of new public companies that were founded in 1720 in the speculative atmosphere of that year uh, and which were drawing capital away from the South Sea Company's scheme. But when the first prosecutions came under the Bubble Act in August um, uh, and pulled down the value of shares in the bubble companies, um, investors were forced to sell their other holdings, including South Sea stock, uh, in order to cover their obligations. So that, that caused a collapse in the value of the South Sea stock. And that's, that was really the precipitating factor uh, in puncturing the bubble. Now, the South Sea Company wasn't irreparably damaged from this. It continued operations into the 19th century. However, John Law and his French system, well, they're done for. By the end of 1720, John Law leaves France a disgraced man, and he dies less than a decade later in Venice. For his era, John Law seems to have cast this image as a larger-than-life figure. And you can see that in some prints that were created of him during this time. Back at the library, one of the curators, Meredith Martin, shows me a print of John Law where he's looking quite regal. It's meant to kind of represent him as this, you know, very fashionable but also very authoritative figure standing in a royal garden that looks like Versailles, holding this piece of paper that says, you know, I speak my words to the king. Um, highlighting his connection to France's ruling regent. And it's meant to show his connection to the crown and to the fact that you know, the monarchy gave him the authority to enact this scheme. And as the prince, you know, as, as the volume sort of moves on, you see John Law increasingly become a kind of object of ridicule. Some of the prints she's talking about are from this book called The Great Mirror of Folly. It's a Dutch book published in 1720, though it reminds me more of something like a scrapbook of satire rather than a book. It's filled with prints, but also copies of plays and poems and playing cards, capturing the mania of this bubble environment. And like Meredith says, the longer it goes on, Law looks less and less regal. There's here he's riding on a donkey, kind of like Don Quixote, and you have stock shares being expelled from the donkey's ass. Um, you know, you have him here as this figure of Atlas with Cupid, who's about to hurl his bowling ball and knock everyone down. Here he is with a windmill on his head. Now, we don't know who created many of the prints published in The Great Mirror of Folly. This book was published in the Netherlands, which had more progressive laws around censorship, but still, some of the artists may have wanted to avoid retribution elsewhere. In many of these, they're using, they're drawing upon sometimes also satirical prints, like attacking Louis XIV, but then they're changing the characters. So Louis XIV gets reimagined as John Law. Many of these images get at this idea of a world turned upside down and the unprecedented speed at which you could build a fortune and then lose it all in what feels like the snap of your fingers. 
Meredith also shows me these satirical medals that were circulating around the time of the bubbles. They look like the sort of commemorative coins that you might buy as a souvenir at a theme park today. And then there's this wonderful, this other medal that is narrating the kind of breakneck pace at which some, someone could uh, become a millionaire. You know, millionaire is a new word that's t- coined around the time of, the, of these 1720 bubbles. Um, you buy shares, you become a millionaire, you get your carriage, um, and then over the course of, by, by Thursday and by Friday, um, you begin to lose it all, and then Saturday you go to the hospital. <laughs> so, and that parallels the kind of rise and fall narrative so starting from, you know, John Law as this authoritative figure to ultimately this, this object of ridicule. Now, maybe this sounds familiar, because it definitely does to the FT's U.S. markets editor, Jennifer Hughes. She's covered markets for the better part of the last two decades, and she's seen this boom and bust play out many, many times. When Jen first started out at the FT, it was in the middle of the dot-com boom. Those first few months, it was normal to see NASDAQ and the S&P 500 rocket up 3 or 4% a day with some crazy new IPO of a company that had no hope of making money, if you were being realistic. So I came into that, and then a few months later, it crashed or began to crash horribly. And that taught me a lot about the way people can convince themselves of almost anything. This idea carried over into the global financial crisis in 2008, too. Everyone wanted to believe that we had genuinely found a way of spreading risk through securitizing loans so low-income families could have access to the sort of credit that the middle class has always had. They could buy homes, subprime borrowers, in other words. So we said, well, we found a new whizzy way of spreading the risk here so we can do this and extend this. Politicians love this stuff. Everyone did. It sounds great. Nothing could possibly go wrong here. And then, of course, it does. And it's always really, really sudden when it does. Jumping across bubbles, Jen says there are these common threads. And one is that there's this idea of FOMO. So you're going, oh, yeah, I bought South Sea shares at £100 a share, and now they're worth £200. Um, And your friends go, I need to get into this game, too. And so it starts to grow from there. And it kind of then takes on a life of its own because everyone who got in early feels super smug. And some of them would have been smart enough to get out at a profit. And you kind of get to that point where someone will be buying in on what we call the greater fool theory, the idea that there's some bigger idiot than you that will pay more for it and you will still get out in time. And sometimes you have that persuasive salesperson like John Law. I mean, he introduced paper money to France as part of this. Obviously, it went a bit wrong. But at the same time, he wasn't wrong about the principle that paper money can increase the amount of credit in circulation. And then there's also just something that's inherently human about all of these things. I would say the main thing is a kind of a willing suspension of disbelief. People can convince themselves that this time it's different. You know, there's the brave new world sort where someone's promising something different, a brand new technology or literally a new world, as it was um, for the South Sea bubble and the Mississippi bubble. This idea that this brand new unconquered continent full of riches, untold riches. So you could easily turn around to people and say, ah, you haven't been there. You don't know how amazing it is. 
Behind the Money is hosted by me, Michaela Tendera. Safia Ahmed is our producer. Topher Forges is our executive producer. Sound design and mixing by Sam Giovinco. Cheryl Brumley is the global head of audio. Thanks for listening. One note about today's show. Did you happen to notice the classical music playing in the background of this episode? That music is called the Overture Suite in B-flat major, later known as La Bourse, or the Stock Exchange. It was written by the composer George Philip Telemann, who lived above the Frankfurt Stock Exchange in Germany. And the piece was composed in, yep, you guessed it, 1720. This music's also a part of the New York Public Library exhibit that I visited. It's called Fortune and Folly in 1720. And if you're interested in seeing it for yourself or learning more, check out our show notes. And a special thanks to the curators of the exhibit, Nina Dubin, Meredith Martin, and Madeline Villian. See you next week, everybody. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation... Partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.